Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. Together with Delta, they're putting 5G into the hands of ground staff so they can better assist on-the-go travelers with real-time information. From the Delta Sky Club to the Jet Bridge, this is elevating customer experience. This is Delta with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Last spring, my friend Stephanie and I had a chance to travel to Rome as part of her research trip. And as usual when I travel, we stayed at an amazing Airbnb. It was the perfect spot to check out the sights and just relax. But what was happening to my house while I was away? Did you know that while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb? Most people don't think about their space as an Airbnb, but hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey everyone, welcome to Talk Easy, a weekly podcast of interviews with fascinating people from all walks of life. I'm your host, Sam Fragoso. Thank you for tuning in. This week on the show, we have NBA Hall of Famer Spencer Haywood. But first, let's start with narratives. For more than four decades, the story of Spencer Haywood has essentially gone untold, tucked away deep inside the annals of old, pre-three-point shot NBA. At long last, his amazing career as both a ball player and political advocate is on full display with Full Court, the Spencer Haywood story, an insightful documentary that spans from his days picking cotton in rural Mississippi as a child to being inducted in the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame. He went to the Olympics, scored 144 points. Colleges everywhere wanted this young man. He saw what he needed to do, and he was willing to fight for it. I don't think he realized the cost. Aside from being one of the best players the ABA ever had, Haywood's accomplishments include winning an Olympic gold medal, being a four-time NBA All-Star on teams like the Seattle Supersonics, rest in peace, New York Knicks, and the Los Angeles Lakers. And perhaps most historically, Haywood fought against the four-year rule, which stated that players could not enter the league until they were four years removed from high school, meaning they either had to attend college or wait around for nearly half a decade to turn their passion into a profession. Haywood's career paved the way for players like Kevin Garnett, Kobe Bryant, and Kwame Brown. Wait, someone doesn't fit there. Anyway, when I spoke with Haywood by phone a couple weeks ago, we talked about his tendency to be a savior, NBA in the 1970s, and overcoming a troubling coke addiction. He was honest and raw, 
ready to open up about his amazing life and career. Spoiler, there is a moment where I am trying my best to repress all emotions, but it is increasingly hard to do, even listening to the episode now. Haywood's story, which was grossly forgotten for too long, is a powerful one. And I'm truly honored he decided to tell it on this podcast. So, finally, here's Spencer Haywood. Early on in the documentary, you mentioned how your mom, uh, well, in, in your upbringing, believed that you were not. Uh, did you did you use the term chosen one? Yeah, it was chosen one, a gifted one. Um, it was. I was born on April twenty second. My dad was April twenty second, and he had just passed a month before I was born. So. It was, you know, when you have the biblical background that my mom was dealing with and also little African uh, history of it and Native American history because my grandparents were that way. So, you know, they tend to look at things like, you know, like spiritually chosen, this is the one. And it goes all the way back to the biblical times, you know, of people looking at that particular one. So I was born on that day, but also I was born with these big, strange looking hands. And, uh, I was also born with four digits instead of three digits. So my hands were very long and I was just a lean kid that came out. And so that was the, that was the, the conversation at the time. And so one of the old cotton pickers who, cause I'm from a very small place and you know, it's, it's about all about picking cotton. So he said, and I was told later that this boy is going to be the best cotton picker we have down these parts because of the, because of my big hands. So right. yeah, that was the whole story of how I was how I was felt about it. And then you know the the neighbors would come over who had arthritis and so on. Baby, let that young baby feel your hand, feel your, feel my knees, and get this arthritis out of there. Get my feel my hand. And for me, all I was thinking about, hey, I'm going to get a, some cookies out of this deal or some Tootsie Rolls. I can go to the store and buy me some if they give me a nickel. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I bit into the whole idea. Like, yeah, 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 I'll heal you up. <laughs> you know, give me a Coca-Cola and a, a package of naps, you know? Shoot. <laughs> I mean, I'm, it's fascinating to me because did you not find being called the chosen one to be like intimidating like that's a big thing for your parent to say to you that you are special and that i mean every every parent tells their kid you're special you're great but the chosen one that's a big thing yeah and, and it's a big thing it was a big thing but i i wore it well and i and i, I and as i was growing up when i was 12 years old um i wanted this furniture for my mother because we never had furniture in our home and so I started cutting hair. I learned how to cut hair at 12, and I cut lawns for everybody. I had this mower, my brother, lawn mower that my brother had fixed up uh, for us to, to cut our own lawn. And uh, and I started going all around the community, all over, and cutting other people's lawn and cutting hair. And I made enough money to buy this furniture. And... And it was from uh, something that I wanted to do. And I was 12 years old. I bought our first furniture in our house. 
And I bought it from guess who? Who? Gordon Furniture. Gordon Furniture Company. Gordon Furniture was owned by Charlie and Larry Gordon's father. Huh. The great producers. Yeah. Wow. So that's where I bought my first furniture up in Bell Tony from that from that family. So you bought this piece of furniture. You have that distinct memory. When was the first time you picked up a basketball? Well, I picked up a basketball earlier, uh, and it wasn't the kind of basketball that bounced or it was, had, it was uh, the one that your your mom made it for you. right? My mom made it. that's my that's my that's my first real basketball because before then I was shooting uh, uh, round balls, you know, cans and stuff like that. So I was pretty proficient at that. And then she just decided, well, you know, because we were just begging her, please, mom, 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 can we have a, we need a basketball. We need our own basketball. She said, oh, boys, please, I'll make you one. I'm like, how are you going to make a basketball? <laughs> and so she put together this, this sack, this cotton sack, a croaker sack, and put all of the clothing in there and, and along with uh, cotton because you didn't want it to be that light. And lo and behold, we had our first basketball. And then the basketball was just, you know, well, you can't uh, dribble it because it can't bounce. But you take imaginary bounce. You say bop, bop, and you make the pass or make the shot. And you were shooting into a barrel rim because we made a hoop up. And, and we used the barrel rim for the, for the hoop because we wanted a big enough hoop so we could never miss. <laughs> it's It's kind of the opposite of now where... I think everyone dribbles way too much. It's just too much dribbling. Yeah. There's, well, there's the catch. There's the catch. <laughs> yeah. So when you were playing as a kid, uh, were you better than everyone else on the on the on the court? At that time, no, I was the worst. You were the worst. <laughs> yeah, my my dream was always when we got a ball that bounced was to always get better than my brother Andrew. And he wanted to keep his foot on my neck. So it was just really a hard battle to, to take him, you know, with, the, with hopefully keeping you at a level. And one day we were playing basketball in Pee Wee's backyard. And Pee Wee, uh, because his head was small, that's why we called him Pee Wee. <laughs> his, his dad name was Birdhead. And the oldest son was called Sonny, Sonny Birdhead. And so his name was Pee Wee. These are not, so gr- these are not great names for people. <laughs> well, that's the, way, that's the way Silver City was. Silver City, Mississippi. So, uh, so we were playing basketball in his backyard. And I was 13 at that time. Because I had just had horrible basketball experiences. And my brother was yelling at me. He was like, you're never going to make it. You're never going to be as good as me. Blah, blah, blah. And the reason we're losing to these uptown boys, which was over the tracks from where we live, uh, it's because of you. And I was like, but they're older than me. And they're bigger than me. And he was like, I was like, what are you going to do? And he just yelled and yelled. So I got so angry. I grabbed the ball off the rebound. And I sprained up the pierce and I dumped it. Bam! And everybody was like, oh my God, what happened? And so that day I hit. It was that, you know, like if you 
playing any sports, at that period, you just hit something and something happened mm. to you. And you said, wow, I got it. I got it. I am great. I'm magnificent. I'm all of this. So we played by the moonlight because the sun went down and we just played on and on and on into the night. And all of those years before, when we finished the game and we won the whole series, and we were walking back on the by the railroad tracks, going back home, uh, back down in the old town of Silver City. And my brother said, come on, walk beside me, because I would always walk behind him, you know. <laughs> and not, not right up shoulder to shoulder, but that day we walked side by side, and we talked basketball. We talked about uh, the love of what a great game it is, and we sort of cried with each other. And that was the day I said, wow, this is my game. This is the day for me. And so when I, I rushed to the, to the playground and to this guy's backyard, again, the next day, my game had went away. <laughs> <laughs> so I was a little disappointed, but I, it, it clicked in. Yeah. <laughs> So that was the first time that your brother seemed to like accept you in a way. Yeah, it was my first acceptance. Yeah. What age was that? I was 13, 13. So this is right before you go to high school. Cause in high school, yeah. you did particularly well. Yeah, I did. But, you know, that was just before high school. And so when I got to high school, you moved to Detroit in first, summer. Right? Yeah, but no, 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 before I even got to Detroit. But when I was in Mississippi, when I left uh, Woman Hearts Elementary School and then they enrolled me into, uh, I graduated in, from the eighth grade and I went into the ninth grade, I grew six inches. <laughs> <laughs> so everything that I thought I had in basketball was done because I couldn't walk and chew bubble gum at the same time, so. <laughs> because you know growing pains and and that kind of you know growth spurt it just happened to everything my coordination I couldn't even walk straight I couldn't even walk, walk a straight line and then you have all of the high school coach he's yelling at me you know you're going to be a player up here and you're the, you're the tallest thing around and and we had other tall people but I was like the new kid coming in town so right and I couldn't, I couldn't quite get my game together. I couldn't, I couldn't let it, it just didn't happen. And then I tried to ask him, I asked the coach, Coach Charles Wilson, I said, listen, if my brother was on this team, uh, it, would make us, it would make us great. And also it would help me to develop what I was promoting for Andrew. And, and he said to me, which was a profound statement, your brother is uncoachable. <laughs> he's a renegade, which he was. He was uncoachable and he was a renegade. So I was stuck on my own. And uh, so I just, I, I went to working on my game and stuff. But you eventually quite, quite literally grew into it. I mean, it seemed like you. Yes, I grew into yeah. it. Yeah. By your senior year, were you pretty dominant? Yeah. Well, I mean, once I got out of Mississippi and got to Detroit, I met this great coach, Will Robinson. And Will Robinson was just a master. He happened to be the first black coach in, 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 
in NCAA history to coach. And so when I got to Detroit, my brother Leroy came over to Chicago and brought me over to Detroit. And we were just trying to be scouted and, and maybe somebody would pick me up. But I didn't have a place. I didn't have family. I didn't have nobody to, uh, to look after me and to be with anybody as an adult. So we had to also do two deals. We had to get a place because he was at Bowling Green State University. And here I was up from Mississippi, didn't have anything. So Will Robinson saw my eye in talent. And he says, well, I'm going to take him. I'll take him and I'll adopt him along with his family named James and Ida Bell. Their son was the point guard on the team. Mm. And so that's how I got to Detroit and started playing in Detroit. And my, my, my junior year, we finished second uh, in the city and second, and we didn't make it to the state. And then my, my senior year, the city of Detroit was going through a drought. They had been in the, into the Class A state champions in 35 years. So my dream was to take my team in the city of Detroit on my back to the Class A state champions, going back to flashback to Mississippi being a savior. So here I am now in Detroit. Now I'm the savior for a big city like Detroit. So this seems to be a reoccurring yeah, thing with you, where where you are putting it yourself. Really was. You're, you're it putting wasn't yourself, my desire. Was, was it? I, I don't know that though. I don't know. I don't. I'm not sure. I buy that. I think you position yourself in a way to be the savior, and then in turn you become it. It could be. I don't know what I was doing. <laughs> that is true. You were just a 17, 18 year old kid. So. Yeah, I was. I was sixteen. And I'm like, well, I'm just doing something. Right. But I know that I can save, so I, I, I took on the band. So yeah, good when, point. When you were in high school, was your life completely consumed by basketball? When I was in high school, um, I had to start all over again, educationally, because my. Uh, my grades were bad because we didn't do a lot of schooling in Mississippi because they had to shut down the school during harvest time. So we only went to school a half of a year, basically. So you just miss a lot of school because the most important thing is to harvest and plant the cotton and do all of these things. So when I got to the Persian, I met up with this great mentor and, and, uh, life coach, Wayne Dyer, Dr. Wayne Dyer, was working on his doctorate and, and teaching at Persian High School. What a miracle that was. And so he took me under his arm and we started, I spent hours of like re- reading, learning to write, learning to do all of the things that I had kind of like missed out on in Mississippi. So that was my consumption was that. But basketball, oh, did I love that game at that time. I mean, I played, I drove, you know, we would, we didn't have no car, but my friend Wiley had a car. We would drive all over Detroit. We would play anybody, anywhere, the pros, the Pistons, anybody. And I just loved me some basketball at that point. I, I just loved playing. It was like, it was better than sex or anything. 
<laughs> it was just, it really was because I hadn't had any, so I hadn't had sex, so I was like, well, it's got to be, if it's better than <laughs> basketball, I don't want that. So, yeah, that, that was my game. I was like, shoot, I love this basketball. I think and, that, sh- uh, that should be the new NBA slogan. Basketball, better than sex. That's a good slogan, isn't it? <laughs> Think about it. It was better because I hadn't had any, so I was a virgin, so what the heck was, you know? If, if it's better than this, I don't want it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, we played and played, and then, we, then the, the beautiful thing about it, in my senior year at Persian High School, the great Dave Bing Hall of Famer from the Pistons would bring the Pistons over and they would scrimmage with us because my coach, Will Robinson, and my dad was also the scout for the Pistons, for the Detroit Pistons and the Lions. So they would like tell them, come on over and play with my high school boys. And they would like come over and, and we would give them a good run because I had, I was just, I was just, determined to do something and be something. And also that idea, which we talked about earlier, uh, where uh, he is chosen and he's special. Mm. It's something I had because, I mean, I, I was to, to Detroit. It's like this country bunking. And how is he going to do all these things? So I just reflect, reflect back onto my, my, my town where everybody thought I was this special person. So, uh, well, I'm, if I'm special in civil city. I must be special in Detroit. No, I mean, it, it's understandable. It's completely understandable. Yeah. Do you, let me ask you, do you think that given the way basketball and the system is set up now, like a kid in high school is recruited heavily. Like there, there are people coming to the games. There are offers, you know, secretly being made by colleges there's all this stuff happening you're talking about driving around a city and like playing all these pickup games do you think that even happens now oh absolutely not because you know you have aau you have all of the big shoe companies and all of the everybody's paying everybody under the table they're doing all of these things because guess what remember you are student athlete you can't get no money. You can't get nothing. You can't do this. So it's all about the cheating, all about the scamming, the scamming. And, you know, my boys can't play in this pickup game because you can't play in games like this. Everything must be organized. You, must, must, right. you know, it runs through me. It runs through this person, that person. So, and then they got the YouTube. They, 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 they doctor their film. So they don't develop, but they, it's, it's, a, it's a whole nother world. And and I'm not liking it because I think that it takes away from the purity of the game. It takes away from the honesty of the game because, you know, if, if you know that you're being, you're getting some chippies here, your parents are getting some chippies here, but you're not supposed to take them and everything. So you feel like you're like a cheating and a criminal already. They're making you into this criminal act of just playing basketball. So I, I question that. And that's where, you know, my ruling, the Haywood versus the NBA, the Spencer Haywood rule, it, I kind of question it because everything becomes, you know, 
the student athlete deal where you got the NCAA, they make seven or $8 billion. But the players who do all of the work, right. they get nothing. Yeah, I mean, your, 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 your ruling is, is good in that it, it expedites the process between you know high school ball and going to the NBA and making money. But mm-hmm. the flip side is also problematic, right? I mean, I don't, I don't know if I buy the idea of student athlete at this point. I mean, no, I, no, you don't have a chance to be a student athlete. How, do, how can you be a student athlete? Go ahead, because you, uh, you got practice. It's a full time job on the road. It's a full time job. You don't have time for studying. You're on the road. Right, and I know they they work it out, and they give you false classes, and they do all of these things. But all of it to perpetrate the idea that we are the student athletes, and we you're not supposed to make any money. But yet, the most highest paid person on the state legislature is not the government; it's not anything. It is usually the football coach and the basketball coach. Right. In every particular state and every every university, that's the highest paid player. Now the next player, the next highest paid person, is the athletic director, and then you go on down, and everybody makes money. The power boys, everybody, the whole city makes money, but the player himself cannot take a hamburger, and they're doing all the work mm. and taking all of the sacrifice. So there's that problem. And so they should be state employees, just like the school. But uh, I think that also the university would do themselves some good if they were to look at the idea of making these people part of the payroll. Because you're talking about the players, you can, the players. Then right. you can you can justify some of this stuff, some of the madness, and then you can say. Well, guys, I think, which would help the player to develop is to stay two years in college as opposed to one. And also, it would help the professional leagues to sustain and to be valuable because it helps them to not push out the veterans on the back end. Now, I look at the new draft, this, this lottery, everything, and I'm looking at all of the lottery picks and everything. And all of them are under my ruling, but here's the catch. They are telling me that, okay, this guy here, the number six player, the third player, he ain't developed yet. He won't develop until two years down the line, but we're going to take him number three. And we're going to push out a veteran on the back end. So the parents who come to those games with all of their hard-earned money, they sacrificing those people, the people who who's struggling to make it to those games and to have that extent. And they say, well, don't worry. In two years, he'll be a, a great player. But on your dime, on, on your hard work, all your money you work so hard to earn to come to a game, and you, your guy's standing over there in the street clothes or in a basketball uniform, and, and they're telling you, well, he's going to develop. And then you got the colleges telling them, well, you know, they can't get, they can't even get, Insurance for their head collisions or anything because they are student athletes. And that was set up in 1956 by this old crazy crook for the NCAA. Mm. It seems like this has been an issue for – so this was an issue for you as well when you were at 
Trinidad State Junior College, right? Yes, of course. Yeah. So it th- this was you went there. What like it was sixty seven, sixty eight. 1967, I left the high school and I signed with the University of Tennessee, the first black to sign with the University of Tennessee to go and play um, big-time college basketball. But then there was a problem with the SEC because, I mean, they didn't want to have blacks at that time, and if they did have one, he was supposed to deem to go to Kentucky as opposed to Tennessee, because Kentucky had just lost to five blacks and against Texas Western. Mm. So with all of those rambles and all of that scrambling going on, then I, I, I was like, hey, man, I got to like get out of here. So I took the route to go to, to Trinidad State Junior College because Mr. Robinson said, this is going to be a great place for you to develop. So I ended up down there at, at this junior college, and lo and behold, in 68, for the 68 Olympics, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Wesley Ansel, Elvin Hayes, Bob Lanier, and all those guys boycotted the 68 Olympics. Right. So they couldn't take the freshmen from, from the major universities because they was ineligible. You have to be a sophomore to play in the NCAA. But they allowed the junior college to bring our team for the trials. And I happened to be that freshman on the team and the best player on that on that junior college team. And when Hank Iber and all of the Olympic people saw me, they said, oh, here's our answer to all. Kareem, Alvin Hayes, uh, Wesley Ansel, Bob Lanier. We got him right here. And he's 19 years old. He's 18 at the time. And Howard Cosell went nuts on me. He was like, oh, wait a minute here. You're going to let an 18-year-old boy be the, the, the one to carry us to go? It never happened. So they picked us to finish last in the Olympics. Of course, <laughs> we finished first. And I set records that stood for 44 years, scoring, rebounding, and uh, the youngest player in the history of America. Can we backtrack for a second before? before yes, please go ahead. I'm, I, you talked about you wanted to go to the University of Tennessee. Mm-hmm. All of this stuff in America is happening then. Some of it is still happening now. Can I? I, mean, I want to know, like, what are what's that conversation like? Where they're telling you what's that oh, conversation was like? Well, yeah, you're going to be all right. It's going to be difficult now because my whole thing was I wanted my family and my mother and everybody to see me when I played against Mississippi State and the University of Mississippi in Oxford. So that was my big deal, but they didn't allow fans to come to the game, so I didn't know that. I was just looking for my big dream job to be able to play somewhat up north, but yet I'm in the south, you know? And, uh, boy, that was a lot of conversation. That, that was a little bit different than what I thought I was getting into. Right. I thought I was built for the, for the task, but it started to get real political. And I was like, oh, my God, what have I gotten myself into? I, I mean, mean, you're an 18-year-old you're an you're an kid. I, I mean, know. How are you responding to that, like, just blatant, well, gross, 
seven, seventeen. Seventeen, and you're responding to this like this gross racism. I mean, how does that even? Yeah, how, does that, how do you do that? But you, but you see, I was born with that serious racism in Silver City, Mississippi. I couldn't go into the the bathrooms. I was a white only bathroom. I couldn't drink the water. It was whites only water. I couldn't walk on the streets. It was a whites only streets. So I lived through that. So it didn't upset me. I just knew that it was wrong, but I was not going to, you know, it wasn't going to throw me off of my, my game or my course. But I didn't realize from a college standpoint that how deep the politics was at that time and how how this whole thing turned out to be something really different than what I thought it was. Do you think you were immune to it at a certain point? Yeah, could have been. Could have been. I could have been. Well, I was conscious because I had, you know, been learning to read and write over again. I lived in Barnes Bookstore in Detroit, and that's where all of black history was coming alive to me. And African world history came alive because that's when when I was learning to read and write and learning to read proficiently, uh, that's where they let me have my ball in that, in that bookstore. And I was like, oh, my God, I was conscious, but I wanted to make a difference. I wanted my mom to see me play. I mean, right. that's all I wanted. She never did see me play in high school. So my dream was to see me play in college when I come down to beat Mississippi and Mississippi State. <laughs> It sounds like there's a battle here between your consciousness and awareness of the inequity and injustice in America at that time. And then the flip side is, yeah, but I want to go pro and I want to do this and I don't give a damn about the racism. I'm just going to fucking do it. Yeah, well, I wanted to do it for for one reason, because my mother had been picking cotton since she was three years old. Okay, and at that time, her back had went out. She had been picking cotton for 55 years or more, and her back had went out, so she was dragging a sack, a 100-pound sack on her knees picking cotton. So when it came time for me to come up with the idea of going pro, uh, I, I bid on the idea and said, yeah, I'll do it, because the ABA, which was a rival to the NBA, had lost out on Kareem Abdul-Jabbar at the draft because he went to the NBA. And so they came after me, the second-best college player in their mind, um, to see if I would, like, leave college and come to the ABA to save that league. And I said, sure I would. <laughs> That's what I do. I'm, I'm the savior, remember? That's right. Yeah, so there I was in that situation. I didn't choose it like that, but it came to me, and I was like, yeah, I can save. So, you, so I went you to the say, ABA, you and yes. I saved it. Right. You, yes. say, you say yes, you go to the ABA. You're the star there. Kareem right. goes in a different direction. What, During what, the what, Milwaukee Bucks in what the NBA. He, yeah. Was he Kareem, or was it? I think he was he still Lowell Sender? Lowell Sender. Yeah, I think he was. And yeah, then Lou, he changed. He changed eventually. Um, he changed after the uh, first or second year at, uh, in Milwaukee, and they said, "Oh, we don't want you in Milwaukee then. Yeah. <laughs> Not with that name. We don't want you here in Milwaukee." So they traded him to LA. 
Um, what were those opening? After he had won the championship. Not still wasn't enough. Yeah, no. But I mean, you can't change your name. What is wrong with you? It, <laughs> have you ever told him that before? Yeah, I always tell him that. What the hell is wrong with you, man? You can't be changing your name. You're a cotton picker like me. I mean, Ron Artest changed his name. <laughs> All these, I don't know. Well, I mean, these guys today, you can do it. And all my kids are like got those funny kind of names. But uh, back then, you had to be John, Joe. You had to have a name, right. uh, just like a like farmer who who was your slaver and slavery. So you had to have a slave name. Remember, I was, three years earlier, Muhammad Ali changed his name to Muhammad Ali from Cassius Clay. The whole world went. Apeshit. <clears throat> yeah, it went apeshit. Yeah. What, what, were those, what were those opening years like at the ABA? The opening year was like incredible because, you know, like the NC2A and the NBA and everybody came after the ABA about breaking the four-year rule. So by doing that, they allowed this one player, an exception, to come in and play without finishing college four years and that was the ABA hanging point they were going to go after all of the college guys and the NBA had to wait four years so they were going to survive that way and so I was the showcase guy he says well look if you can get uh, five points or seven points and maybe five rebounds we will prove our point so that year, I averaged 30 points and 20 rebounds. 30 so points like, oh, and 20 my. rebounds. I, when, that, when that stat came up in the movie, I was like, all right, hold on, hold yeah. on. Let me, let me go look that up hold real quick. What, what, the, what yeah. the hell is that? That's not a real... That? Man, I was, yeah, I know. And I'm, you know, I was 19 years old. Right. <laughs> and there's only been two. There's only been two players to ever do that as a rookie. And the other rookie is Will Chamberlain. Pretty good player, and Spencer Haywood, yeah, pretty good player in it, yeah. So you were in the you were in the ABA for two years, one year, one year, okay, one, one year. year, one year. Everything would have been great in the ABA. But guess what the ABA did after that one year? After I won the Rookie of the Year, leading scorer, leading rebounder, MVP of the All Star Game, did everything for them, and they gave me a fraudulent contract, right? A contract says for 1.9, but they gave it to me with the idea that we're going to cheat him. We're going to cheat him like a rotten dog <laughs> for saving us. We're going to give him a contract for 1.9, but guess what? We're going to put $10,000 in this dog off plan with the stock market, and when he gets to be age 50 to age 70, he will draw that money. At that time, but otherwise, he died before that. He loses all of it. Everything is done. Spencer, Spencer, let me ask you: market, Did, did <laughs> you did you have someone helping you in those decisions? I mean, you're you're 19 years old. No, I was being I trusted. I trust. You trusted them, and I was and I was saying, why would I'm the MVP? I'm the rookie of the year. I saved this league. I knew they wouldn't do something bad to me. So I signed the contract. And guess what? Just like in Mississippi, it came right back. I was like, oh my gosh. After an experience like that, I mean, you seem uh, like a hopeful human being and and a positive person. 
And yet, I mean, like, yeah. was your faith in humanity shaken after that? Because that's that's not a that's not something where you leave and you're like, oh yeah, people people are good. No, it was very shaken, and it was very shaken, and there's nothing they could do to rectify that with me. So I ended up when the Seattle Supersonics said, "Well, you can sign with us. We will pay you the amount on that contract." We'll give you the, the real contract that they didn't give you, and we'll pay you. But even if you don't play this one year, because you are not eligible in the NBA rules, because you haven't finished your four years, uh, four years after your high school class had graduated, so we will pay you for that year, or we can fight the lawsuit and try to get you to play this year. So I took it and ran with it, because I, I was so hurt by what they had did to me and how they had treated me. And then they, and then they came to court telling the judge, we had him on the contract. He shouldn't have signed it. And the judge says, well, yeah, but he had no legal representation and he was 19, sir. You can't do that to a, a young man. So they just went on and on and on about, well, we, well, we cheated him, but what, what about it? And it was like really an angry, nasty, Mississippi type thing. And I was like, whoa. Right. So they ruled in favor and yeah. you played that first year and then for several more years. Yeah, well, I know, but I mean, in order to play, I had to go all the way to the Supreme Court. And that was a battle that was so brutal and so hostile and so racist that it was just really horrible. And to explain that, uh, the film kind of we kind of get into it with the family and, and show that uh, this was a brutal, brutal experience. And and if you think Muhammad Ali changing his name was one thing, uh, Kareem changing his name was one thing. That was small. This was like you're breaking the college system as we know it. So the NC2A came out with all of their guns, you know. All of these universities put up the biggest lawyers they could find to keep this from happening. The ABA came back now with all teams joined forces. We're going to stop him from even leaving. We'll make him come back and play over here. And then the NBA said, we can't allow him to break our four-year rule. This is the bedrock principle that we have. So here I am in the middle of saving again. And I'm like, oh, gosh. So that, that battle took place for one full solid year. You're 20 in a, in, 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 in a courtroom. I mean, what what is that environment like? I mean, do you remember some of the exchanges you've had in there? Yeah, well, you know, I remember the last one, but, you know, one of the... Uh, uh, Jerry Brown's father was my lead counsel, the former governor, Pat Brown. Yeah, the big Hollywood man. Right. And the former governor of California, yeah. He was one of my lead attorneys. We had Frank Rothman. We had this super dream team that at that time, Sam Schumann spent $2.1 million on that, on that fight. And that's in 1970, you know, so. Really, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. So, <laughs> so to hear it, so what happened was many times when I walked out on the floor, they would not say that they have an injunction. They didn't give me the, they didn't. They didn't serve me before the, in the locker room or anything. They wanted to embarrass me, wanted to beat me down spiritually. So 
they would serve me when I got ready to jump ball at half court. I'm getting ready to jump ball to kick off the game. And they're like, hold it, ladies and gentlemen. We have an illegal player on the floor, number 24. And this injunction tonight is stating that he must be off the grounds in which this arena sat on. So the security come and take me off and put me out into the snow, way out into the backwoods. And I had to wait out there until the game was over with. And uh, then the bus would come by and pick me up and put the other players on. And they were like, I would get on the bus hypothermia because it was cold and frigid. And I was like, whoa, this is some serious stuff here. I got myself into it. And that went on for that whole season, off and on, off and on. It was a battle that was brutal. And so finally, when I got to the Supreme Court and the case was being presented there, and Thurgood Marshall was like, oh, no, we can't allow this to happen because under the Sherman Antitrust Act, you cannot stop a person in America from making a living for themselves. And that's how I won the case. And he told me at the time, says, okay, you won this case, son. But let me tell you, in America, when you go against the system like you have done, you will be ostracized for years and years to come. So it took 45 years for them to acknowledge what I've done. And not only that, but to acknowledge what kind of player I was at this young age. I'm the first and original player to ever do all of these things at age 18, 19, 20. I set all of the records in pros as well as in the in Olympics. I held that record for 44 years. Right. You know, in college, I held that record for years. So, uh, you know... <laughs> So all of it is coming full circle with this film. I, I just love this film. You're talking about your playing abilities, which which were great. We looked at. I looked at the stats. I see the footage. The footage that one can find in this era that you're playing in the '70s. You know, Kareem is playing. Julius Irving's playing. Alvin Hayes is playing. Havlicek, McAdoo. These are names people. Walt Frazier. I mean, my God. These are names people yeah. immediately recognize. And yet when I told people, right. Spencer Haywood's coming on the podcast, I, I knew of you because I'm, an, I'm a basketball nerd. But there are people, right. who, okay. you're, okay. not, you're not, you're statistically in the same breath as those people. But the, the judge was right. I mean, the ostracization of your career and you as a person rendered your career hard to find in the shadows almost. Hard to find in the black ball. I've been black ball from history, from history books from NBA records. They don't talk about me. They don't, you know, like, it's like, it's a hell of a thing. And, and, and the great, uh, the great Thurgood Marshall call it straight. He told me. And so this is what this family's doing. It's, it's, it's enabling me to be appreciated again and be appreciated as a ball player. Now, at that same time, what you talk about all of those great players. I was all pro first team and was like second in the balloting for the MVP. Right. But you can't talk about him. Right. I mean, I know this. I'm pro. You, yeah, you will lose your job if you're in the broadcast. You right. bring his name up. Yeah. In a way, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, in looking at your career now, or, or just thinking about it, 
for a long time, people weren't recognizing the greatness of your career. Did it almost right. feel like it didn't happen? It feels like it felt like it didn't happen. And that's why at the end of my speech at the Hall of Fame, I explained that I did all of these great things for the best for all players and for people in sports, and I enhanced the game in this great aspect. But my last statement was just, hey, guys, and I was speaking to LeBron, I was speaking to all the players who questioned what kind of player was he. Hey, man, I had huge game, big-time game. And that's what I explained at the end. And that's what they all remember. So they go back and they Google up, and they're like, no shit. He had a big game. Right. This game was deep. And so when they see me now, the players, the Durants and the the LeBron and all, and they look at me like totally different. Like, oh, I get it now. You've overcome a lot, and I think something that's always yes, that, something that's in your bio, and that is recognized in the film, is that I mean, towards the late seventies, you did, uh, you know, drugs were part of the equation. Yeah, well, we had a we had a, a drug crisis in the NBA at eighty percent at the time. So, not that you know, I'm. I'm accusing the NBA or, or the, anybody of like polishing over things. I just say from my personal experience, yes, I did coke. And right. so I did it that year with the Lakers. I came there after I had gotten recovered uh, from my injuries with the New York Knicks. I went down to New Orleans and that second half of the season, I was 28 and 12. I came to the Lakers with that stats, ready to ball and doing coke. I watched my game go down from uh, from 28 to 12 to 17 and maybe 10 by by half season, and then down uh, like three thirds into the season, um, three fourths into the season, I was down to maybe 10 and seven, and by the end of it, I was down to uh, seven points and five rebounds and. Uh, 30 pounds lighter, so yeah, it took its toll. It had a, a grip on me that I I did not understand. I didn't understand addiction. I didn't understand the drug at all. I had no control. So then I was able to start well, doing uh, a how, recovery how, how program. Many, how many years w- was cocaine part of your life? There was only that one year, but that was a devastating year because year. then the NBA as well. <laughs> This is our problem. It's not anybody else in the league. It's Spencer Hayward is the problem. So we're going to uh, expel him from the NBA without a trial, without a drug test, without anything. And we're going to send him. Not only could I go to the expansion team, or I, not only could I stay with the Lakers, in order for me to receive my contract, which I had uh, two more years onto it, uh, I had to be exiled to Italy. Like almost like the island of Paphos or something, you know. I was exiled to Venice, and so I had to. I took the wait. And when I saw the Magic Johnson and Larry Bird uh, uh, film, I was taking all of the wait for that at that time. And then when uh, when when Donald Sterling went after Magic Johnson before they took the team away from him. Uh, the first thing came out of Magic's mouth was Spencer Hayward. I was like, what the hell about down here? 
in in that drug period of that that one year, did people try to help you? No, absolutely not. So they saw you do I mean, that, and they just they I mean they just didn't respond. My teammates, my teammates did not respond. They were like happy. It was the most joyful time for a lot of my teammates because. I mean, we finally got him. We got him off his high horse, and 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 I bet he lose that pretty wife he got too, you know. So it was a mean spirit because, you know, agents have a way of like tarnishing players and making those players think evil of the first person who has just opened the door so they can come into the NBA. Ah, uh, so they were rooting. Now, they were rooting uh, for your career to collapse. For rooting big time for it to fall, and to, to prove it more sport more so, I played a to- I missed the same amount of games that Kareem missed. At the end of the season, they wouldn't allow me to to be on the floor. They wouldn't allow me to get my rings. They wouldn't allow me to get a playoff share. They gave me a third of a playoff share, and I was and and he's got to be. He can't come back into the NBA. All of the players did that. It's madness. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's madness. So this year ends. Yeah. You, I mean, this is this is a rough year for anyone who. I mean, this is, that's a lot to to all, to have that happen. It's not like it was over a decade you were addicted to a drug. It was one year. No, no, no. One year, yeah. That that year was just a horrible year. And then when I came back to the NBA after Italy. And I came back, and I was like the comeback player of the year. I did numbers that was incredible with Washington. But yet, when my wife, Iman, who had the automobile accident at that time, and she was like, I was away from home, and I had a young daughter, Zuleika, Iman at the time. She was all alone, and I had all of the Somalians. I had her mother, father. And her family was living in my home in New York. So I couldn't, like, walk on those people. I couldn't, they didn't speak the language, and they didn't know all this stuff. So I was a caretaker. So I, I retired to take care of my family. And then when I tried to come back, the NBA said, no, you can't come back. That was the end of it. Welcome to the NBA, sir. <laughs> You know, all the work, all the things you did to make us great, you are not allowed back. Of all people, you know, you you, you weren't just the caretaker, though. No, you were you again. You 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 were kind of the savior, weren't you? Yes, sir. Hmm. That's the savior part of it. But I accepted uh, that I was, you know, and it goes back to what Thurgood Marshall talked about earlier. I accept my punishment. I accept that it was going to be this way. And I knew it. I always felt it. And even when I was on top of my game, I could have like 35 points and 25 rebounds. And they then the article would say he's had a terrific game. But you know what? He didn't block for two shots. <laughs> God. <laughs> So you, in order to, to that's the black ball. That's the black ball. It, yeah. it, it's always present. You know, it's the presence there. You made a trip out to Egypt after all this happened, yes. right? And and this this was designed right. to be a sort of soul searching trip. 
it was a, definitely a soul-searching trip. And it was also a history trip. I needed to know, how did I get to this wretched part of reality here? I need to know who I am and who we are as a people in order to understand this. So I traveled with Dr. Ben and Dr. John Henry Clark and Dr. Aswar Kwesi. I went studying African history from this inception. And it took me to Egypt and to lower Egypt, all throughout Egypt. And it was it was an eye-opening. So I, I said at that point in time, man, never would a drug ever touch me because I have knowledge of self. And that was the turning point there, uh, a turning point that I would never, ever get down in no form whatsoever. That's a lot of discipline. It's a lot of discipline, but I always had discipline. I just, you know, I trust, and I'm, and I, and I kind of want people to like me. I wanted them to like me, but I, I didn't know that they would never like me. <laughs> so I accepted it in the long run. You accepted people not liking you. Yeah. Before I, I wanted them to really like me, I wanted to prove myself that. I'm not this bad person that went to the Supreme Court. I'm not this person. I'm the guy who saved America in the Olympics. Tell the people who I am, but they wouldn't. They would never do it. Even when Durant broke my record after 44 years, they were not, they didn't say, they said, Durant has broken the record of, and then they didn't say my name. 2012, they didn't say my name. And then they said, okay, uh, now uh, Anthony Davis has become the youngest player in the history of America after 44 years. And uh, like, well, I know they couldn't say Spencer Haywood held it for all this year. No, they didn't mention my name. It's just... I know it's mean. I, how are you not more angry? Because whom the devil wished to destroy, he first must, must make angry. And that's an Egyptian proverb. Yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and anger eats your heart away, too. Yeah. Yeah, it destroys you from within. So I have to let it go and have to let God's will be done and not my own. Because... Otherwise, I got too much, and I would talk too much. I would tell the real story of what what went on in eighty and all that stuff. So I, I rather not do it, and let God be the judge. Right? Do you think like um, do yeah. you think your story is finally being told now correctly? Yeah, this is this is told correctly. Uh, I. I, I, I say this, but I, I guess I can because you're a writer, so you know. But the real story is on the big screen when it's done in movie format. The documentary is like truly special and wonderful. It is it is, it is, is impeccable. But I like to see it from a, from a movie standpoint as well. Right. Well, um, yeah. I'm, I'm glad it's finally being told. And uh... Yes. Yeah. And, and it's special. It is, a, and it's a special documentary. And I mean, people should see this and say, "Oh my God!" Because this is the missing history of NC2A, 
the missing history of the Olympics, the missing history of, of basketball. How do you ostracize the person who made it possible for you as a league to expand from 17 teams to 32 teams, Spencer Haywood? How do you uh, deny Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, uh, Steph Curry, uh, Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, all of those people that this history because they are under my ruling. They would not have been able to do it. I was explaining to LeBron, he was like, well, what do I mean by that? I said, look, if you had to wait four years, you would have lost $100 million just in salary alone. And you would have lost every record that you hold right now. You would not have had have any of those records. Same thing for Steph Curry, all of them. So how do you deny that person? The only thing that I have to lean on now is, is faith. I mean, it's going to happen in God's time, not on mine, because it didn't happen when I thought it would. Right. It's interesting how things yeah. almost never happen when you think they're going to. Exactly. <laughs> so it goes back to back to Mississippi. My mom used to sing this Mahalia Jackson song. He may not come when you want him, but he's always right on time. There it is. <laughs> well, uh, I'm certainly glad that I'm uh, helping in some way tell your story. And uh, thank you for thank your movie. And thank you for for your life. Honest, honestly, it's... Um, thank you so much. It's inspiring, man. Thank you so much for doing this. Okay, thank you. Big thanks to Hilda for helping arrange this special interview. Full Court, the Spencer Haywood story, will be making the festival rounds throughout 2016. It's currently in search of theatrical distribution. You can watch one of Spencer's many impressive basketball reels on YouTube. We've included a particular one in the show notes below. Lastly, a big thanks to Spencer Haywood for taking time to come on Talk Easy. People. Remember to subscribe to the show on iTunes and SoundCloud or your favorite podcasting app. If you want to drop us a line about anything, email the show at talkeasypod at gmail.com. I promise I read and respond to every one of these. This is especially true this week because someone has emailed me about life choices moving forward. And uh, I'm down to you know, play that role. So You can also follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at TalkEasyPod. And lastly, if you have a spare moment in your busy day please give us a review on iTunes. Our theme music is provided by Vanilla. Our executive producer is David Chen. Graphics by Ian Jones. Technical assistance by Kyle Menchel. The show is produced and edited by Corey Atad. And I'm your host, Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. People. Who was the best player you played against? The best player I played against by far is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Hands down. And the best forward I ever played against by far is Julius Irving and Larry Bird. Those are the two. Yeah. No, I can't even imagine. Yeah. God. 
All right, man. I just, I just I had to know that, and really, I really appreciate. You gotta know it. That is, and the best player, the best player, the best player that ever played the game is not Michael Jordan. It's Queen, <laughs> but because he's a troublemaker, because he's a troublemaker, he's down here with me now. <laughs> <laughs> Malcolm Gladwell here. Let's re-examine the details of your employee benefits. With the Hartford Group Benefits Insurance, you'll get it right the first time. Keep your business competitive by looking out for your employees' needs with quality benefits from the Hartford. The Hartford Group Benefits team makes managing benefits and absences a breeze while providing your employees with a streamlined, world-class customer experience that treats them like people not policies. From supplemental health benefits to coverage for life and loss and more, the Hartford has flexible products and personalized service solutions to meet the diverse and unique needs of your employees. Keep your workforce moving forward with group benefits from the Hartford. The buck's got your back. Learn more at thehartford.com slash benefits. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Diamonds Direct has done it again. This month only, get ready for an offer you can't resist. Buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. That's right, a stunning diamond tennis bracelet at no extra cost. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. So hurry into Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet will not last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com.